I have a question. Sure. How long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I had a project to 164. Okay. the wrongful conviction of Brennan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. resonated with you? Where did your outrage land? How did you feel as you sat next to Wiegert and Fassbender in the interrogation room, watching on as they manipulated, duped and coerced 16-year-old Brendan Dassey? Did you sit with the press gallery and watch the theft of Brendan and his uncle Stephen's presumption of innocence while Ken Kratz relayed the state's narrative without fault, falter? or corroboration. What happened next for you? Did you walk past? Or did you stop? Were you called to act? To advocate? To just do something? Because doing nothing felt like a crime. For millions of people, making a murderer was a catalyst for change. Change in interrogation tactics. Change in lives. 
states are now citing the mistreatment of Brendan Dassey and his false confession as supportive evidence in passing bills banning the use of deception when interviewing juveniles. Apathetically or pathetically, either will do, Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin continues to do nothing. And he's really good at doing nothing for Brennan Dassey. But the vigilant support of ordinary people, and by ordinary, I mean incredible, doing extraordinary things continues to build momentum. And people continue to say Brennan Dassey's name. So was it Reddit, a Facebook group? Or did you deep dive into the case files and transcripts? Was it an impassioned YouTuber from California who helped inform you on the issues? Because when we're informed, our collective cry for justice becomes even more powerful. Director Joe Berlinger, who chronicled the West Memphis Three injustice in his three-part docuseries Paradise Lost, talked to the power of the grassroots movement that swept West Memphis, Arkansas, including those who had once stood outside the courts as Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly were wrongfully convicted. But these same people would later become vocal advocates in the fight for their release. You see, we're a microcosmic representation of every society, an alliance fueled by people with a shared aversion to injustice and abuse of power. And if we look at the history of wrongful convictions in America, very few people prove their innocence or get released inside the system. It is people outside the criminal justice and legal system who pry it loose through their sustained pressure and efforts and all the initiatives they do to bring attention to a case. We must be those people. We must be vigilant in our efforts to seek justice for Brendan. We must demand more of a system that maintains its fiscal and ideological positions by the apathy of the courts, judges, and the laws that bind them. As Dr. Richard Leo said, everyone needs to remember, this is as big an injustice as it was five years ago as it was 10 years ago, as it was 15 years ago. Even more in the sense that Brendan has served more time and every day he serves in prison is a day he should not be serving in prison. Joining me for this episode of The Sixth Hour is Stacey Seabrook, Paul Capaldi and Mark Hodnett. An awesome representation of the advocates who pound the keyboards, who virtually thumb the case files and who have been motivated to act in the most incredible ways. We dive into what being an advocate means in the context of the wrongful conviction of Brennan Dassey and his uncle Stephen, and discuss the community that was born five and a half years ago, that is a heaving, breathing collective, campaigning for justice, freedom, and accountability. The conversation continues. trajectory to freedom continues to arc. It's an injustice that illustrates the urgent need for reform in the interrogation room of juveniles across the United States. Sadly, 
a false confession remains one of the most prejudicial sources of false evidence resulting in wrongful convictions throughout the US. But I, like millions of others, didn't know that five and a half years ago. In the December of 2015, Netflix could not have foreseen the lasting impact that making a murderer would have, nor the visceral response it would elicit in millions of people. 19 million people, in fact, in the first two weeks alone, watched the 10-part docuseries, globally. In the December, small-town Manitowoc was home to a mere 33,300 people. But within days, that number would virtually swell as millions of viewers and ready-made social and criminal justice reform activists, consuming the docuseries, would invite themselves to the Avery Salvage Yard, become outraged at the egregious injustice unfolding at Manitowoc and Calumet County courthouses, and feel utter despair as they watch the 16-year-old, highly suggestible and speech and language impaired Brendan Dassey grapple with the gravity of the situation he found himself in at Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department on March the 1st, 2006. But fueled by the injustice playing out before them, a community was born, a community that continues to thrive five plus years on in that elusive search for justice, with a new wave of advocates ebbing into the flow every few months. Among the most prolific is Paul Capaldi, a relentless conversationalist who releases videos on the case almost every single day. Stacey Seabrook, who weaves the story of this injustice through his body of songs, and Mark Hodnot, who seeks justice through philanthropy, interviewing and informed commentary. They join me today to discuss advocacy in the context of a wrongful conviction, or in this case, too. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. How did you all come to find yourself in 2021 discussing advocacy on a podcast about Brendan Dassey? Paul, if you'd like to start. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. It was my daughter that first asked me in February 2016. She said, Dad, have you ever heard of a place called Manitowoc? And so, you know, five and a half years later, you know, sometimes I wonder, hmm, maybe if she hadn't have asked me that question, you know, life would be a lot simpler. But uh, like so many of us watched the documentary, was forced to watch the documentary. In fact, before, the, if, before we even watched the documentary, Emily said, well, it's about this guy, Stephen Avery, that was wrongfully convicted. You know, he did 18 years of a 32-year sentence only to be exonerated through DNA. And I thought, hmm, yeah, this DNA stuff, this can sometimes be problematic because it can, it can be too heavily relied upon. But then she, then, he, then she said, but then his, his nephew confessed. And I said, well, there's your problem, you know. You know and, and she said to me, well, would police plant evidence? And I said, well, I, I, I don't really think so because the risks are just too great. So then when uh, she came back to, uh, from Glasgow and insisted that we watch Making a Murderer, I couldn't believe what I was watching. And I remember the thing that really upset me was the fact that the, the sheriff's department were clearly so corrupt that despite this huge conflict of interest, they're finding all this evidence 
you know, all this bogus evidence. And, and, I, and I thought, you know, this is a real shame because this is so embarrassing to police, not just not just in Wisconsin, but anywhere. And, and I've got a lot of friends in the police and I, I know some really good, good people within the police force. And, and that's what really annoyed me. So I actually ended up phoning uh, the sheriff of Manitowoc, Robert Herman, and we had quite a few lengthy chats about the case. And, uh, you know, he did his little bit to try and tell me that, you know, I had been deluded by this documentary. But everything, everything that he told me just reconfirmed what I suspected. So, yeah, five and a half years later, I was very deeply concerned by the, uh, the, the law enforcement side of it. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that is not how, uh, how it's supposed to be. As I say, that's that, that's what fired me up, and and along the way, you you meet some uh, really great advocates, don't you? You know, some some incredibly in, inspiring people, such as you know the dude. Yeah, absolutely. Stacy, how did you find yourself here? How did I found myself here by watching uh, the the documentary right a week after it came out i, I saw the uh, thumbnail and i didn't really like it and then i with a friend watched it and you know i just made the mistake maybe <laughs> i stepped on a surfboard it seemed like by after watching the documentary I, I i just thought well these guys can't be in jail still and so i googled that and that was a step onto a, a board and the waves just sort of carried me through the last five and a half years because I really immersed myself in the research and the it was just all encompassing that first six months there's just seemed to be so much these groups just manifested and and we crowdsourced the material and and after that and I was going through my own life experience so I had a lot of time alone at that particular time and so I immersed myself in this information beyond the documentary and the more I researched the more I just saw that this injustice is massive. And, and so, and then I just wrote a few songs and I wrote a few more and a more and more, and here we are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's interesting you touched on there that for me, when I first watched the documentary, I almost had this sense of, I hope this is like some sort of social experiment that Netflix are doing, but sadly it wasn't. Mark. Yes. Yes. So how, how do you find yourself talking to me in 2021? Well, not all that different from Paul in that in April 2017, when I was in Europe, returning to Australia, and my daughter was in London, I was transiting London. And she brought to my attention this documentary because she knew I was interested in social justice issues. And to be honest, I was a little surprised I wasn't more familiar with it until she told me because by that point it had been about 18 months since it had been released Mm. and I sat down in her apartment and watched two episodes with her then they went to bed I kept it going for another episode or two into the night and the next morning I was on a plane or actually next evening I was on a plane back to Australia and by that point I had joined Netflix downloaded all the episodes and I, as soon as I sat on that plane at Heathrow, I was watching the rest of it right yeah. to the end. Yeah. But, the, but the thing I think that really hooked me in was the reality of the potential for humans to be so evil to do what they did and 
I could easily imagine anyone that I knew, including myself, being caught up in such a story when people have willful intent to do harm. Yeah. And that was the thing. I couldn't just then watch it as a piece of entertainment. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do that. And that's got me interested in to follow what was already well-established Facebook groups and other advocacy media. And from there, a lot has happened, which I'm sure we'll talk about in due course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's perfect into my next question for you all, which is what issue was most salient for you? So where did your outrage land? Once you'd watched Making a Murderer, where did the outrage land for you? Stacey, if, if you want to take that. Sure. Um, for me, it was the, uh, I have a tendency to, I dislike it when, or I have a version when people ask me to believe an unreal story. And so that's where it really, I always say I, my heart really is, I'm empathetic towards Stephen and Brendan and stuff, but my real fire came from what I saw as just a blatant, um, and the more you research it, this is the thing, people go, oh, you're manipulated by a documentary. Well, not really, because I didn't stop just after 10 episodes. Um, I went into the research, and as you start doing, reading the, the files and the Castle report and trial transcripts, and you just realize, and I thought, my, I just couldn't uh, let it sit. You know, it wouldn't sit in me because, you know, it's like that thing. It's once you know the truth, it doesn't settle until you, until something's rectified. And in this case, that's really what inspired me the whole time. It's this injustice, this um, abuse of power, this, this actual, you know, this hubris of that particular law enforcement agency to think that they can pull this off and everyone they're, they're relying on people's apathy. And that's what really, I mean, it's still, I, I kind of had to take a break from the case in year three. And I, I, it ebbs and flows now, but I watch myself because it's still there, that, that sort of fire in me to um, expose the corruption. Yeah, yeah. And Mark and Paul? For me, the salient point, well, probably a couple, if I may. First, what I watched going on there, and, and I'm like Stacy and Paul, filter the, the stuff that we know is part of storytelling as opposed to the totality of the case. That's not to take anything away from the documentary, but they're trying to condense a long period of time into 10 hours of viewing. But the interviews with Brendan were the ones that really, really hurt inside mm. um, to see how a vulnerable young man who was just being a nice boy trying to be compliant and they had the law enforcement officers in, in particular, we getting fast and were in my view at least, uh, behaving in an evil way and they were totally okay with that. But that's, that was one of the most important salient points. The second is the impact that this had had and the totality of the story because this story goes back way back to 1985 and the impact that was having on Stephen's mother and father, Dolores and Alan Avery and Barbara's, Barbara's Brendan's mother, mother and father, the impact it was having on them as parents, I could, I really felt their pain. And to this day, feel they, their pain to observe, just to observe people doing stuff that is just so wrong. And 
and you know they they were just a everyday working class family trying to live from week to week making a world that was made sense for them and to see people thinking that they could do this and it was okay to that family that's really what struck me well you know funnily enough i've just written this down i can remember at the time of watching making a murder as, as i say it was the um, my annoyance was totally against the sheriff's department and i remember at the time i didn't really have much sympathy for brendan dassey because i thought well you've said all this stupid stuff you've gone along with what the detectives were telling you you know and having been a youngster myself and and having had one or two scrapes i thought why are you saying all this stuff why are you just agree why are you giving in to them you know and i really didn't get that so i didn't really have much sympathy for brendan it was probably about a year later certainly chatting with uh, carla chase who is obviously steve's niece chuck's daughter that sort of changed me a bit and also uh, ericozy you know when you actually dig deeper because this this stupid statement by fallon that you know innocent people don't confess you think that should be the case but it's not i didn't quite have the sympathy that a lot of people i know for example you tracy you had that was the thing that, that really got to you was how they treated brendan and i i was a little bit sort of you know well you've landed yourself where you've landed yourself why just go along with them and i didn't really get that so it's it's been quite a journey to you know to discover how Wigan Fastbender and the state in general how did they get Brendan to discover that you know the former disgraced prosecutor is emailing Tom Fallon suggesting that you know just before the first seventh circuit arguments that they should be looking at Brendan's sentence now it's almost as if he had taken the plea deal therefore i think it's interesting that you have that take you know on first watching because for many people the visceral response was contained in that interrogation room with Brendan. It is interesting that you came to it from that. And I suppose that speaks to a lot of people who still refuse to believe in Brendan's innocence, that they have landed where you first started from and they haven't moved on, you know? So it is that information collection that helps inform how we make our opinions. And I put to you all, how did you collect the evidence that you needed to support your opinion, particularly as continuously since late 2015, there's been a deluge of information and misinformation being shared. Tracy, this is Mark. So I will just give you mine, if I may. Um, it, it To me, it starts off at, at, it's like climbing a ladder. So I've formed my opinion by first listening to others to start with. So I could kind of create a contextual environment for what would ultimately be my own informed opinion. And that included going onto the, the Reddit pages and Twitter and Facebook pages to understand the factual side. I'm a fairly analytical thinker and I need to understand how things work to come to an opinion. So I started doing that. And then I started participating with other known advocates, including Paul and Richard McAdam and, and Stacey. And from there, I fairly early on started to do some uh, YouTube video work myself. I was asked to do it, but I, it, was, it was a bit cathartic for me because it was a way of expressing my emotion through having a, a say. And 
that then led to attending rallies. Uh, my first rally I went to was in 2018. And, and when I went to that rally, there was a very functional purpose for going to that rally and to come all the way from Australia to that rally was a big deal for me. I met, I met specific people that were relevant to this matter, the Ray Avery family and, the, and um, Barbara and Brendan's and all that side of the family, Pete Dassey and a lot of other really interesting and known supporters such as Sandra Greenman. And from there, I, within two months of being in Wisconsin, which was the first time I've ever been there, I was back a second time uh, on my own because I needed to piece together the physical surrounds. I wanted to have a much better understanding of the environment that is, was Wisconsin. And uh, that then started to dominate uh, the way I was putting together my knowledge because I wanted my knowledge to be based on a good understanding of not just if you like the factual aspects, which we could get from case records and so on, but also the environmental aspects, both physical and human, um, that then created a, a, a world in my head that made sense when I was talking about facts in the case. And, and just one final little thing to give you an example of how valuable that was is just to understand how people speak there. People will say, like in any different environment, even though it's English speaking nation, uh, within, within nations, people have ways of speaking. And to understand when someone makes a statement that this is what they mean by that statement, because if you don't understand that, you could interpret it differently. Uh, it's, not, it's, not a, it's just a selection of words and an imputation from a word that was what the intent was. So, going to there, going to Wisconsin, going and speaking with the Avery family, and ultimately for me, speaking with Stephen, gave me a much, much better understanding of the reality on the ground of what this case was. And, and therefore I started to build my knowledge based on that sort of continuum. And, and that's where we are today. That's some journey, Mark. Stacy, Paul, yourselves. I started just researching, you know, that was, that was me. Um, and with all that, what was it? Crowdsourced information. That's what, that's where it took me. And so I have a bit of a different angle on things. It's, you know, the more I learned, I would sort of cross-reference it with footage and documents, news programs and stuff. And so everything just screamed to me just to keep learning more. And so, you know, I would take things like you learn something say when the phone calls were released for the dispatch and then I, I would circle back and then I look at how Kratz is giving his his press conference and and now rather than just seeing that press conference which raised flags right off the bat but when you can cross-reference it from stuff that you've learned and you know that certain phone calls exist it just once again always points back to why are they doing this then you know because you can almost there's, there's numerous points where you can go they, the, the law enforcement are misinforming, lying if you want, you know, and so those are the things that I, I, I got all my information from research, to be honest. And then obviously when once, you know, at the beginning, the first year, there wasn't YouTube channels, you know, there was uh, Reddit. I went to Reddit a lot and that was the main source for me. But then once uh, I hooked on to a few people and then uh, Eric Jose was, be, really became this sort of force in the community and 
and then I hooked up with him. He he reached out one time and we started talking. He heard some music that I produced and uh, about this the case and and then you know the wave took over and we've all met each other and so that that's that's where I've served. But main, mainly, you know, there's a lot of they're not talked about superstars in research and a lot of them put their material up on Reddit and other forums, Twitter, Facebook groups for free. And these these people are just amazing at um, spreadsheets um writing documents that are easily readable and you know just the the sheer amount of time that a collective group of people we don't know all of them you know but um that's where that's where it all came from for me brilliant i can just take you back to a comment that uh, mark made about the fact that he went back to uh, manitowoc a couple of months after the rally that's interesting that because uh, Kathleen Zellner is without doubt Wisconsin DOJ's biggest pain in the neck, but Mark is definitely number two on that list, isn't he? <laughs> it's definitely. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> I, I, I wear that. I wear that badge if it's true. Yeah, very welcome. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, for me, it was the fact that I reached out to Sheriff Herman was was interesting because he was pleasant to chat to, you know, because I'd sent him some respectful emails. And, uh, you know, he was happy to take my call. And we chatted quite a bit about all sorts of things, including the fact that he found out that I played the accordion and he told me that his mum plays the accordion. And, you know, but he talked about the fact that there were Facebook groups. I didn't know there was any Facebook groups. So it was thanks to him that I actually joined the the various Facebook groups. And and again, Mark won't mention this, but he's actually the uh, one of the main moderators in the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey discussion group it was through the uh through the facebook groups that uh, I, I certainly came across the, the dude eric Jose. And, and i'm trying to think how i first came across stacy's music i can't remember it must have been just typing stuff in on youtube you know looking for stuff that's all you can do you know when you're when you're in galashiels in in the scottish borders I'm 3,600 miles away from Manifox. You know, I, I realise, obviously, yourself and Mark are a lot further. And for Stacey, I think you're several hundred miles away. I don't know. You? Yeah, long. Can't walk there, <laughs> that's for sure. Or take a while. No. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's what you do. You just go on the internet and, and find out stuff that you can. For me, the, the, the YouTube channels were always the ones that I, that I sort of looked at initially there were the, the main three i would say were casey martinus laura keck but obviously the dude was was the one that a lot of us sort of went to i suppose you know in in fairness yes he didn't use a lot of profanity he's one of his his main sayings one of his great sayings was keep it classy for brendan dassey you know which is which is something that you want to sort of look at when you when you're doing a you know this sort of advocacy stuff it, it if you come across, I, I realize that sometimes, yes, you, you can't help but want to want to swear at the situation, but it really doesn't it doesn't help, does it? You know, if you have the occasional profanity, that's going to be far more effective than, uh, you know, just going out on a rant. And I think initially that was the reason why that Her- Herman took my phone call and because my emails weren't cursing and swearing. Um, and certainly when we chatted, you know, it was it was all very polite. You just keep going. You just keep looking at different things. I mean, bizarrely, of course, certain theories to do with the case have come and gone, haven't they? You know, the uh, the idea that, that the blood in the RAF4 was planted from the blood vial, that seems to be not to be the case. 
that doesn't immediately equate to, oh, well, Stephen Avery must be guilty. No, it just means that there's, there was another source of blood. And sure enough, he'd cut, his, he'd cut his hand, he'd reopened the cut. There's blood in the sink one evening and it's gone the next. I think it's human nature that people will grab on to an idea yeah. theory and run with it. And, and perhaps those theories evolve over time because what we're five plus years on. And so much more information has come out, you know, through Kathleen Zellner's investigations, as Stacey touched on, through, you know, the, the incredible researchers that, that worked this case. So as I touched on at the opening, you're all advocates, social and creative activists even, and you engage and you inform others in the push for justice and for transformation of the systems that have enabled the wrongful conviction of Brendan and his uncle Stephen. I'd love to expand on that for a little while. So, Paul, I'll, I'll begin with yourself. If you can tell listeners about your YouTube channel and perhaps elaborate for us on your specific and personal objectives by using this platform in the way that you do. As I say, having had all these conversations with Herman, Sheriff Herman, I was able to then inform other people of things that he had said. And you end up putting something on, say, Facebook, you put a, a, an item in there. It tends to, because there's so many people there posting stuff, it very quickly um, you know, gets forgotten about. So I wanted something that would be there for years to come. So what I did was I decided I would you know, just, just do a, a couple of pages of notes about my conversations with Sheriff Furman and put them in the form of a video but I certainly didn't want, and, and I said this to the dude at the time, you know, I don't want to stand on your toes and uh, I'm, I'm only going to do the one video because you're the, you're, you know, the, you're the main guy here. But he was like, oh, no, you know, you should do more. So, so I kept doing more and more videos. But one of the things I, I like to try and do is a bit like yourself, you know, try and get people on to come and chat with me about the case, try and get it to the to be a little bit like as if you're meeting somebody in a bar and it's just a just you know a nice conversation you know where people are, are given their their background as well so yeah what what I tend to do is sometimes I'll go through uh, specific subjects if you like topics you know like some for example at the moment I'm looking at the uh, a, a really good article for the Oklahoma Law Review written by Michael Cicchini who's who you've interviewed a couple of times haven't you I have. You know, so, you know, going, going through an, an article, which, which can be, it can be quite daunting because, you know, that the, the, there is, to some extent, uh, quite a lot of this sort of legalese, if, if, if that's the right term. You know, th there's a lot of terminology which, which, which can be a bit uh, intimidating at times. But then at, at other times, just, just having chats with people, like, for example, really looking forward to tomorrow evening. I'll have a chat with, with Pete Dassey, and I've been doing that since, since the middle of November. And he looks forward to having a chat with me. And also, you know, he, he, he asks me every week, you know, oh, who have you got, who have you got coming on as guests this week? You know, who's, who's coming on? And, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just that great sort of having everybody together. It's, you know, a, a lot of it's to do with, Obviously, you know, Brendan and the case in general, but, but there's other stuff that we do just for the fun of it. So, yeah, the, the, the YouTube channel, it's, it's a bit sort of varied, but, but I find that probably a bit like, like yourself, I tend to like to put questions 
and then just let other people do the talking if you can if you can believe that because i am known as a <laughs> behavior but uh, that's <laughs> yeah yeah i i think what's really important about your youtube channel paul is the connections that you make with it if you go to the chat for example there are people discussing the case discussing what you're talking about i think it's a it's a vital source of keeping the momentum going for supporters because we saw with the keep walking till they're talking is that there's a ferocious appetite Mm -hmm. for information about the case and i think you know your youtube channel serves it very well stacy so please correct me if I'm wrong, but you've released a catalogue of around 45 songs. You weave lyrics of fact with rhythmic storytelling, and perhaps there's a nod to Dylan in some of the mm. guitar work. What compelled you to reach people in this way? Like you have an incredible knowledge of the case. That's very evident. So which came first, the music or the research? Uh, yeah, the well, I always... I was late to music, so I didn't play anything till I was 23. I, 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 my ex-girlfriend taught me three chords, and, and so I started, but I was always a writer, and I always, you know, I loved Dylan, and I loved his wordsmith uh, ability and his cryptic lyrics and all that. And so when this case came through, and I was so immersed into the details of it, that's just what came out. I'm actually really, uh, you know, I don't... I don't like calling myself an artist or I just say I'm creative. I'm an antenna for this creative sort of thing in my life. It comes and goes and it pushes me around, to be honest. And so when I was charged with this um, injustice, I saw um, it was a way to process some of my frustration. I never had an idea of putting a song out. I would sit there researching and I'd have my guitar and I'd, I'd write these tunes. And then it was... Um, to, it was a year to the day, roughly, or uh, within the week of making a murder. And I, I had wrote this song called TikTok Manitowoc. And I just put it out there on Reddit, just as a sort of like, hey. And, you know, one of the things I think is really important is that, uh, and it's really, my eyes have been opened through this case, is that we spark each other. And so some guy, I remember Daniel Luke, this guy right at the beginning, of, and he went to Manitowoc and he was videotaping Ken Kratz and taking mm-hmm. DNA swabs of his car and uh, and I thought that's amazing and so this case really charged it, it resonated with people somehow why you know and and I think it's because it's a blatant uh, display of abuse of power and corruption but so I realized that those people sparked me in a way to to get a bit more active or do something and it, even if it was small you know and and so that's what I think has really grown in me is, is realizing that my voice does matter even if it's a single voice and to be honest with the songs and stuff i think well i thought more so at the beginning um that the corruption was so blatant and so ingrained in this case that i don't i didn't think those two were ever going to get out and, and so i thought what could i do and i thought art is such a it's a way to um capture people emotionally is a way to grab them emotionally so they pay attention for a second and so i thought songs last a long time because you have dylan's hurricane carter and that whole thing but and i thought well if these guys stay in prison for the rest of their lives and these 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 buggers get away with it well i'll just do that i'll write a song and maybe you know in 20 years it'll it'll still be this song no one can take my song and so 
that was the real the sort of uh, impetus behind my creative work. But then I just started, as I said in other interviews, there's just so much material, <laughs> unfortunately, you know. And so the more I learned, the more oh, it just uh, and and so yeah, I just Fantastic. got taken away to be honest. Mark, I would be sure that you've been a driving force behind many initiatives, many high profile initiatives and supporting many people in their endeavors to help educate the public. You yourself recently interviewed Jerry Booting and having collaborated with you on the billboard campaign late last year across Wisconsin, I know firsthand your logistical prowess and your willingness to take action. What have you been involved in? What have you driven that you feel has had the biggest results so far? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> what I would like to say at the beginning to set the scene is that I've been inspired by the diversity and power of all the voices out there in this thing. You know, Paul and all his work and Stacey, and he's just amazing music and lyric. and But all the, the less known people behind the scenes, that framework of uh, intent from good people is really what's inspired me. Into, but to get specifically to your question, there's a few other things surrounding that. So when I first went to Manitowoc in 2018 to the rally, I met for the first time the wonderful lady, Sandra Greenman, and we talked for a fair while. And, and out of that came, not then, but subsequently, a uh, discussion with her about Stephen, who we all know, Sandra's very close to Stephen. And I asked her, just for contextual frameworks, does Stephen have anyone on his visitors list that is not family, but is a man? In other words, did he have a mate or a buddy? And she said, no, he didn't. Most of the people on his visitors list were family, which are obviously friends and supportive and, and female. Because why I thought about that issue was because, you know, sometimes you, you need, as a man, you need another man's view and a friend that you can rely on that's not unduly influenced by history of, of family politics and what have you. Anyway, without getting too detailed in that, that led to me ultimately being on Stephen's visitors list because there's a limited number of people who can be on that at any one time. And that, that then placed an enjoyable but heavy burden that I'd take advantage for Stephen's sake of being on that list, which meant I had to go to Wisconsin regularly to, in my mind at least, to justify taking that one of those positions. And that subsequently ended up being that I was, I think I've been back to Manitowoc in those years. Now I've been back about eight times, I think, eight or nine times. I visited Stephen in Warpond Correctional Centre about 35 times. So to go, that created a framework behind my enthusiasm and will to make a difference. Because what I'm trying to do is to try to bring the humanity issues behind this. So uh, my work with Stephen and Sandra and supporting wherever I can other people to do what they're doing is part of if you like, fueling and oiling the engine of, of, of change. And that ultimately ended up becoming close to the Avery family and, and particularly Dolores 
and Alan and visiting Alan on a numerous occasions up in Cribbets because that's his sort of place he goes on weekends for a bit of R&R &R and being close to other people and then things like that led to billboard campaigns when the when um, the reward came out I forget when that was now it was about 18 months ago I think we needed a, a mechanism to let that reward be known so I with some other friends here in Australia we put together a campaign and started hiring billboards to to advertise uh, or to publicize the reward and liaise with Stephen's uh, lawyer about that so at least um, the message was the right message and and that from his side whatever I was proposing to do would be was okay I didn't want to do anything that unintentionally was not correct to do and so from that uh, as uh, as you know yourself Tracy we launched into a billboard campaign associated with Brendan so I just I have you know I've been around the block a few times in life I've I've I don't usually give up very easily on anything if I feel right is on my side. And so my work involves trying to be a good human being, helping others that can, can hopefully you know, get some value out, out of that assistance and being myself inspired by all the amazing work that dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of people do every day from even little micro things all the way to some of those deep researchers that, that Stacey referred to before that are sitting there in the background. So it's a, it's a lot of words to answer your question, but my role is to facilitate everyone, if I can, uh, in inspiring them to keep on keeping on. It's, it's a generous role. It's a very generous role. Had any of you ever been involved in a wrongful conviction case to this level of commitment before? Never for me. Nor for me, never, no. no. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd heard about the fact that over there in America, I, you know what I knew about America was that they they have incredibly long sentences and sometimes ridiculous sentences. You know, like two hundred seventy five and a half years or something stupid like that. And I knew that that sometimes for sometimes quite minor things, you know, you, you could sue one another and be awarded millions of damages. And you know, I, and I just put it down as being you know that's typical American. You know that. They're louder than us. They they make no more noise than us. You know, it never occurred to me that there was that kind of wrongful conviction going on. And and as I say, just assumed, of course, of course, the police wouldn't frame frame an innocent person. You know, why would they do it? Well, I found out the reason for that. Take taking the risk to do it, but to them, it was just normal routine. We can name the West Memphis Three. Tommy Ward, yeah. Adnan Syed, the Exonerated Five, you know, Jeffrey Deskovich, Marty Tancliffe. The list is endless. Mm -hmm. The list is endless. But for me, those came into view once I came across Brendan Dassey. The education I think that all of us have had over the past five plus years has just been incredible incredible and i think one of the roles for all advocates is that we're engaging and educating not only each other but the general public and when you see people advocating on twitter for example i can see the level of education in the tweets as they evolve from different people so you know that these people are consuming as much information as they possibly can that one question i do have in regards to the true crime genre 
and this is a little bit of a side question. Do you think there are ethical issues here? So do we walk a fine line between activism and morbidity? I'll throw that open. Hmm. Gee, that's a very interesting question. I think we do, don't you, with that um, Murder in the Park documentary, you know, where that David protest went way, way too far with his students and uh, managed to get Anthony Porter mm. out of jail when, uh, you know, and our story Simon put in there, you know, but, but that's, <laughs> that, that is so against the norm, you know, that, that, is, that is one, one, one example. I don't think I've ever come across another one, you know, but when it comes to wrongful convictions, I don't think there's a, d- a danger of being too vociferous as, a, as an advocate. Yeah. From, from my point of view, um, Tracy, I, I'm always very conscious um, and it's so easy to walk off the path of uh, accepting the important principle of the presumption of innocence. So in the advocacy role, in the enthusiasm to get justice, we need to uh, abide by the rules. And in the so whilst we'll all form views about certain things or even certain people, we need to do so in a very cautious way so as we don't commit the same sins that others have done in, in the case of Stephen and Brendan, for example, that we're quite rightly critical of. But I think you can do that. You can do that effectively. You can do that with due respect to the, the principles that I uh, refer to and do it professionally and carefully and caringly. And at the same time, still have debate of differences of opinion. So I think in the advocacy for justice issue, it doesn't give us an open book to be raving. It should give us an open book to be thoughtful. It should give us an open book to be enthusiastic. But at the same time, we need to abide by the principles of the presumption of innocence in, in particular. And I think when we do do that, we're more effective and more powerful in, in the things we're trying to achieve. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. I, I think um, for me, there is a fine line. I, I bristle sometimes when I read certain comments, when I realize people there, because we are identified by a group of support as we're supporters, I don't, you know, I don't agree with everything everyone says, and we're not a we're not a homogenous group. You know, it's we're all individuals after the same cause. But with true crime, I do worry that um, there's this you know this sensationalization of um, just watching and sort of um, voyeurism, if you would, you know, on this sort of grotesque details of what being human is in some realms. With the wrongful conviction, I don't. It's a tough call for me to call it true crime because wrongful conviction. It's it's just a different world for me because I think one of the reasons it resonates especially this making a murder is wrongful conviction is it's an injustice that's agreed upon most of the time and so and it resonates with people like wow that could have been me you know but and and the thing for me with this particular case Stephen Avery is it's happened to him twice and so you you know if anyone was talking, you know, it gets lost that Teresa Hallback is part of the crime. You know, to me, the true crime of this particular saga is the corruption, you know. And so I think humans, we always have to watch walk a fine line, you know, and really, like Mark says, you got to go back and sort of just ground yourself and see, you know, what is my motivation here? 
is it, you know, that's a good, good question in life is what is my motivation of why I'm doing this? And um, hopefully you come up with a good answer. <laughs> I mean, the, the work of an advocate is never linear, right? It can be chaotic. We know this, and it's absolutely true of this case. The stream of information is ever evolving and the need to digest, respond and share case movements, such as new petitions or new motions being filed to the supporter community is vital in maintaining momentum. So touching on what Mark said, do you think the presumption of innocence is sacred and that by being a sharer of information in a very public way, that it's vital to not repeat Kratz and Kaczynski's behavior in the court of public opinion? Or are you of the mindset that anyone is fair game and that all information should be shared and presumption of innocence be damned? Is that tricky, do you think? Paul, I'll put that to you first. Well, can I, can I just go back a step, though, to the end of Making a Murderer? When Steve Glynn, who is obviously Steve's lawyer that eventually, along with the Wisconsin Innocence Project, they get Steve out back in 2003, and he poses the question, you know, the common belief is that if you've got the right lawyers and they ask the right questions and they do the right things and they come before the right judges, then everything will be right. And he asked the question, at what point do people begin to realize it ain't working? So going back to this advocacy thing, and I know, Stacey, you're keen on this, you know, how do you sort of think outside the box, as it were? You know, how do you come up with other ways of trying to draw awareness to the case, trying to make a difference here? It's You don't want to just go down the same path that everybody else has gone down before and, and you end up with um, something as crass as Orlando Hudson in the Michael Peterson case saying at the end of it, you know, Michael Peterson imprisoned for however many years it was, at least at least a dozen, if I remember rightly, you know. And he talks about the fact that uh, it shows the system works, you know. And you think, seriously, you think that the system works, that somebody was imprisoned all that time because of the decisions that you made in court to allow things to happen the way they did? I was shouting at the, and swearing at the TV when, when he said that. You know, obviously you're a sharer of information in a very public way. My question, I, I guess, is quite pertinent to you insofar as do you think that presumption of innocence is sacred or do you think anyone's fair game? Certainly if, if I'm touching on something that would be deemed, you know, possibly a bit risky, then I would always try and pose it as, as not being an opinion but asking the question. But I, I suppose that kind of sidesteps what, what you're saying, you know, in other words, is, is everything that you hear, should that then be shared? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think there has to be certain things that you have to act with, with a little bit of caution over. Just because you've heard something, it doesn't mean to say that it's true. So you've got to be careful how you, you, know, how, how you disseminate that information. One of the things that, that always struck me was that, if you like, the guilty community, they... They're trying to claim that the, you know, that the, the convictions of Steve and Brendan are, are perfectly sound, you know? You say to yourself, who are you trying to kid? I would much rather you be honest with us and say, look, we're happy with the convictions because it saved the county. It saved the police. It saved a lot of money, a lot of reputations. You know, does it really matter if a guy from a scrapyard and his not very bright nephew have... Uh, you know, have ended up where they are. If they said to me, does that really matter? You know, 
at least they would be honest with me, you know, that that is their opinion. And of course, the answer to that, well, yeah, of course it matters, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're Stephen Brendan or Mike Peterson, you know, a celebrated author. It it doesn't matter who they are. You know, we're we're just going to keep talking until they're walking. But yes, to to give you a a, a sort of definitive answer, yes, there have have been instances where I've, people have got in touch and and shared certain bits of information. I've even passed passed on that information to Kathleen Zellner and and just left it at that. You know, she's the one that that, that can act on that. I remember once I emailed uh, Steve Drizzen and uh, shared him an email, which he hadn't seen. <laughs> so, Mark, Stacey, do you have any thoughts on that? Stacey, I'll let you go ahead. Okay. Well, I think yeah, I think there is uh, always, you know, we're, we have to discern and you have to, you have to let, you have to check yourself because uh, confirmation bias and all that stuff, you know, I, I've always, with this particular case, I always... I know my biases. I know what I thought. I try to circle back and make sure I'm, uh, I've got the right take on it. And I think I do, but, uh, I certainly don't. Um, I, in fact, I don't like, and I, I try not to practice and I do not like reading when I hear, um, kind of really frivolous or shallow accusations being thrown around whatever platform there is. It just, it bristles me because back to what Mark was saying, you know, you have to think, you're involved in this case or interested because of this um, presumption of innocence that was denied, you know, uh, both, well, Stephen especially. And so what's the difference between you and someone else if you're just slinging out accusations baseless uh, on, you know, just hearsay virtually? Um, We can say we research stuff. There's very few of us that research research. You know, if you've read the case files, CASO, trial transcripts, you've done a little bit of research. There's if you're getting through um, evidence ledgers, you've done a bit more, you know, but if you're just reading someone's view on Facebook, that's not real research. And so I bristle at a lot of the stuff I read. And so I think, you know, we have to discern, you have to you know, do due diligence. Uh, yes, the presumption of innocence. Uh, it's a principle that is sacred in my view, but it's how you handle it that is important. And I think it goes hand in glove with the noble pursuit of truth so the presumption of innocence can't be to the exclusion of enthusiasm for the truth and when i'm dealing with matters in this case uh, i i look at not the presumption as being different but how i deal with it differently if i'm dealing with commentary about individual citizens as distinct from commentary about taxpayer-funded law enforcement officers who have a duty to perform their role. So uh, if there is commentary going on about individuals that is based on provable facts, well, then that's a matter of fact. If there's commentary going on about uh, suppositions or speculation or just raw emotion, well, then I don't at all encourage that. Or if it's being said always qualify it by saying um, this is not factually based it's uh, an assumption but in my own personal discussion I don't get involved in speculation about things comes to individual people because I just think that's grossly unfair and if that was if all that was said in social media was true there were about you know 20 people that was responsible for the murder of Teresa Horbach if you just accepted that on its merit 
If I could then re return to the issue of law enforcement officials. Now, I distinguish these people away as in their role as a taxpayer funded role and who they are as individuals. If I take, I'll just pick a name. If I take Tom Fassbender as an example, I don't know who he is as a man. I don't know who he is as a father, a husband or a member of his community. And I don't need to know, what I do need to know that he's a paid law enforcement official that I have a right to expect would behave in a certain way. And so I think I'm, it's fair game that I couldn't be critical of him as an example, based on what we know happened, not on speculation. If I believe he behaved in a, what I see as an evil way towards Brendan Dassey, I think that's fair game. Does that make Tom Fassbender the worst man in the world? No, it doesn't. And I don't even try to go to that because I don't know him. But I do know that his paid behaviour, his, his role, his duty of, to uphold truth um, and to pursue truth um, was his duty under the law. So to me, he's fair game. And anyone in a similar role like that, such as Mark Wiggett and Ken Kratz and even the judges, right? I think they're fair game, provided you do so professionally and with due thought. Yeah. I think that's a really important distinction that you've made there because in the, they are fair game in those moments where it matters to the, this, you know, the wrongful conviction. Yes. Now we, we've touched on the researchers, but this community is absolutely teeming with some of the most incredible researchers. I'm, I'll name but a few of them. So we've got Millbilly, Joris Magilla, Mystic Jinx, AC Rookie, Dr. Silkman, Actually, as I say those names, it sounds a little bit like X-Men or Marvel characters, but <laughs> all of whom are absolutely relentless in conducting an investigation into the minutia of the case, an investigation that law enforcement didn't or wouldn't do in 2005-2006. And we know that this level of commitment in the seeking of justice has not waned in over five years. Where would you direct new people to the case to inform themselves. So who, what are the most trusted sources of truth, do you think? I think uh, I'll start that. Um, I think uh, the case files, trial, trial transcripts are the best place to go. And it takes a special person to go through that and find it. But um, other than that, until you arm yourself with uh, some real detailed knowledge of uh, Castle Report, all that stuff, that's where I think you really get an understanding of what is going on. YouTube channels and stuff are great, but they seem to, you know, I think Eric Jose's channel is actually great because he was, you know, was, there's a lot of timing going on in this thing. So as you're going, you know, we're five years into it, but three years into it, there was this sort of, a, well, you know, it's like we were all together, this idealism coming along. Now it seems like there's a huge wave of um, new people with that are emotionally charged, but not as, knowledgeable and so um i think eric jose and and mill billies and but in order to understand and paul capaldi's and those things but in order to understand that what they're talking about and the depth of some of the issues you really need that background so i always tell people don't you know just go to the casa report the trial transcripts and um steve Avery, whatever i forget the website but any of those ones that, that offer that information yeah, I, I would just agree. Sorry, Mark, I was just going to say I agree with everything that Stacey said. But going, going back to you, you mentioned about, you know, some of the really bad actors in this case, definitely the judges. 
And can you imagine if you had a mixture of Judge Willis and Fox in one? That would be absolutely horrendous, wouldn't it? No, I you don't know? think anyone deserves that. I, again, would echo Stacey's sentiments about the deeper research, but it's always difficult to do that when because your question related to new people. I would I would say that watch and even though it's only a stepping stone towards the fuller knowledge is to watch the documentary any number of times because you'll learn more and more the more times you watch it. Take that foundation piece of knowledge, albeit without a lot of deep detail, but take that foundation piece of knowledge, bring it into the the chat environment to kind of embellish and add to that knowledge. But at that point, you need to have your filters on high, high alert because there is so much information that goes on in the chat environments that is well intended, but are just emotional outbursts. And you need to have a capacity to, to get rid of that. Mm. And then the question is, well, how do you do that? Where do we go to from there? And then you get involved in that deeper research. And if you're really enthusiastic about it, maybe join some of those researchers who are all very engaging and want uh, to have other people involved and uh, assist that with that. But this is a, this is a challenge, challenge of the mind as well as a challenge of anything else. And so your, your capacity to analyze something, push us to the side, the garbage, absorb the possibility and move forward is really the, the main game in being uh, in this research and advocacy role. I was just going to add to uh, my answer is if there's new people out there and they're, they're thinking, you find that one thing that really bugs you, there'll be a lot, but just find one of the main ones and uh, you try and, it, try and inform yourself about that. And the one thing I would say from my experience is you pace yourself because this case, we always talk about the rabbit holes and they're deep and they can take a, you know, it's literally taken, I mean, a lot of, it's taken hours and thousands of hours of my life. And, um, you know, I enjoy it. And because it, I, I think I know what the truth is, you know, or like, I know that I'm, my motivation is to expose the corruption that to me is blatant, but it can take a lot of energy, you know, and so just find one piece. And if people are new and they just say the key is what gets them or the blood is what gets them or whatever it is, I swear, if they just research that one small point, they're going to, they're going to be here for a while too, because it just snowballs on you. Going back to what Stacy was saying there about the fact that uh, you know you watch the documentary and then you go and check out the um, the, the trial transcript because you know the actual documentary. I think there were three episodes that dealt with the actual trial, so that's like three hours worth. But if you go through the trial transcripts, you're talking about what was it, 28 days worth of trials, and interesting things like why were there no photographs taken? So you can actually go in and read the trial transcripts. And you actually get to the point where Tom Sturdivant in, in the trial says, you know, I, I accept responsibility for that. Mm. You know, and, and it was just a case of I was determined to find out what, you know, how was this all handled during the trial? So you just you just keep out those uh, trial documents. As you say there, Stacey was saying that that's the that's one of the best things that you, you can do. Some of the researchers out there that have posted stuff on Twitter, you know, you mentioned your, your McGillers and your your Jerry's you know, TikTok manifold himself, you know, 
it's, it's great because I keep getting a message, you know, uh, there's a new tweet and you go and check it out. And, you know, it's, it's presenting stuff from angles that you've, you've never even thought about. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're coming to the end and it would be remiss of me not to mention Richard McCannum in an episode of the six hour focus on advocacy. Many may know him as Eric Ozy and sadly passed away last year. Mark, when we talk of being activists, there's also a responsibility to encourage and mentor others. Can you tell listeners about the Richard McAdam Advocacy Foundation and the legacy that it's creating? Yes, thank you, Tracy. And I might just say to preface that is that Richard was just truly inspiring and it, it probably, if not for him in some ways, I may not be where I am today in this case in advocacy pursuits. And in fact, Paul has been recently playing some of Richard's past broadcasts, which I said to Paul the other day, reminded me more powerfully in his absence, how powerful in fact he was. And so to go uh, in, in honor of his achievement, significant achievement, and, and together with family last well, earlier this year, but the thought was constructed from last year, we created the Richard McAdam Advocacy Foundation as a tribute to Richard, the purpose for, for which this advocacy foundation was to encourage new voices to speak out, to speak out about matters that were important to them in a professional, caring and classy way. And that foundation started in January, February of this year. Um, and it actually takes the construction of a financial contribution to providing broadcasting equipment, screens and, and cameras and microphones and um, lighting. And uh, attached to that is mentoring services to encourage and help people in what area, whatever area of broadcasting they might need some assistance in, uh, which we all do. So uh, we thought that was a, an appropriate way, given what Richard brought to, to us, that we would continue that legacy by encouraging others to speak out. And um, it's early days, we've received a lot of support where we'll be shortly issuing our first scholarship in that, which we'll, t we'll be talking about more in the weeks ahead. Oh, fantastic. That's brilliant. And as you said, a, you know, a fitting legacy in, in Richard's name. Now, as time's gone on and you reflect back on perhaps who you were, you know, late 2015, I know certainly that my life has been changed by my involvement in this case. What has changed for you? So I'll answer that first, if I may. I think I've, what's changed for me is I've discovered another part of me that probably was always there, but really didn't have a light to shine on. And the amount of time as with Paul and, your, and Stacey and yourself that I spend on this matter with Stephen and Brendan astounds me. But it astounds me because it, it feels so natural to be so passionate about this cause. And I feel, in fact, in a very tragic way in terms of the impact it's had on Stephen and Brendan and their families, I feel honoured that I've actually found uh, a pathway here because it's taught me a lot about me and a lot about society. 
and a lot of about how powerful we are as a collective. Uh, and we don't always have to agree to be powerful. The coming together and the importance of good principles in life is really expounded exponentially in this case. And so I'm grateful, even though I'm not a young guy, I'm in my 60s, that there was so much to learn and continued to be learned from this case. And that's the difference it's made to me. Uh, yeah, I think, um, how have I changed so many ways, to be honest, with regards to the case having an impact on my, my being is, you know, what happened was I gained a faith in humanity through just regular people stepping up, you know, and everyone has their, for whatever reason, this, this cause chose me and, but I'd never been involved in anything where I saw so many just quote unquote, run of the mill people, you know, actually standing up and, and back to Richard, he was a real big part of that because I thought, I'll just, you know, he had talked and um, I remember one video he put out and he said, uh, he was just talking about how he just decided, you know, if, if he wasn't going to do it, then, you know, or if he didn't, who would? And so that's how it's really opened my eyes to um, when, when we stand up, we, we inspire other people, no matter how small or how big, you know, you can look at these Kathleen Zellners and these like mega stars, you know, that how they inspire tons of people, but on a day-to-day -day basis, standing up for anything and speaking your truth, it sparks people. And that's what ignites that uh, inferno, you know, and I, and that's why this case is such a big thing. So that's really what's uh, it's, in, it's uh, instilled in me, the sort of faith in humanity and the goodness, you know, because so often in, in today's media, it's all negative about, but we are still have this core value, you know, and uh, it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that my wife, been married now 28 years, you know, she, she knows me very well. She knows that if I get a bee in my bonnet about something, I don't let it go. That's just me. Um, you know, once I, once I decide that I'm interested in something, then, you know, I'm all in there, you know, and uh, it's not one of these things that you can do half-heartedly as far as I'm concerned. You know, you have to, you have to give it plenty of attention and it's, and it's not like it's uh, it's like hard work doing, doing a YouTube channel. And it's, it's, it's great fun doing a YouTube channel because as Stacey's pointed out, you know, and Mark, you know, you meet some great people, some really great people that, you know, it, they don't have to be the, the, the biggest names in the world. You know, it's just, you know, regular people that, are, that have come together. But the, the one thing that has changed, of course, is that, you know, I know so much now about the, the legal system. And I refuse to call it a justice system in America. Well, certainly not in Wisconsin. But I, I do know a lot more now about the, the legal system. And, and I'm glad that I've found out all this, this sort of information as, you know, and following what Kathleen Zellner is doing and following what, you know, Steve Drizzen and Laura Nyrider went through all the hurdles that they jumped. You know, they kept getting hurdles put in their way. They kept jumping them and jumping them and jumping them until eventually uh, Supreme Court, well, I think I've already told you what, what my thoughts about them refusing to to take on Brendan's case because uh, I remember chatting with the dude about the fact that, you know, what are we going to do this year? Are we going to go to Manitop or are we going to go to Washington to the Supreme Court to hear Brendan's case? And it doesn't happen, you know. Getting back to the dude, though, yeah, he was... Uh, often used to refer to him as my wee brother, which was quite comical because he's, he's like, you know, I'm five foot nine and he's 
he's over he's over well over six foot tall you know but uh, he, he was my, my 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 wee brother you know um mark's definitely the older brother you know he's he's the one that's at this that, that, that that's in charge you know and and, and me and me and stacy are the you know we're, we're a bit sort of we've got a little bit of militancy about us haven't we <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think though, you know, listening to yourselves and, and many of the people in the community that I've spoken with in the past, that tenacity is a commonality yeah. in people involved in the, being active in this case. Finally, gentlemen, what words, as this is the sixth hour, the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey, would you leave for those who are supporting Brendan in his fight for justice? For me, Tracy, the simple words and very common words is never give up. Brendan Dassey could be our own sons. And if you take on that ownership of his cause, uh, you'll see it through. And uh, the same is true of Stephen, but for Brendan, just never give up, never give up. The truth will prevail. He will go home. I'm absolutely certain of that. I would say that Martin Luther King Jr.'s injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's really what fueled me. And so that's why we, even though I have no connection to Brendan or any of these people, that's why I think that's what's fueled me. And so that's, that goes to, towards Brendan and Stephen or anything, you know? And so um, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, as I say, from having first watched the documentary, after about a year, not having much sympathy for Brendan. Now, I, I, do, I do have great sympathy for him because I've had the pleasure of chatting, you know, at great length with Pete Dassey, his, his dad. And, and I think Brendan and Pete are very, very similar. You know, Pete often says, you know, I, I wasn't great at school, but, you know, he's, he's just a really nice person. I mean, as far as Brendan getting out, of course, he is. He's, um, it's as soon as Steve, Stephen Avery gets, gets, uh, gets released, you know, he's going to be, uh, Stephen, driven and law and I, they're going to be knocking on the door and they're going to be getting Brendan out pretty sharpish after, you know, after Steve. Having come this far, you know, it's, it's, it's not really about us you know, being advocacy warriors. It's about Kathleen Zellner. She's really got the, the state running scared now because, and, and so they should be. She has really bust this case right open. You know, she, she just keeps developing more and more to use the term coined by the dude, wonkiness in this case, you know, disingenuosity by the state. There's no doubt in my mind and the rest of us here that you know, Stephen Brendan will soon be uh, walking over those prison gates. Yeah, and hopefully Australia's lifted the uh, the ban on international travel by then. Mark's so. desperate. Mark's desperate. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> So thank you. Thank you, Paul, Mark, Stacey. Thank you for all you do. And to play us out is one of Stacey's finest and just quietly my favourite as justice uh -huh. slowly disappears. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Cheers. Thanks, Tracy. Stephen Avery, Brandon Dassey, the case will bring you to tears. I want to dive in, 
You can go deep, it becomes painfully clear How the state pled the case On the press conference day for all to hear Convicting two innocent men On evidence that now disappears We got lawyers talking We got lawyers touring They're traveling miles and miles We got viewers viewing, we got people scouring, pouring over case files. We got a lawyer tweeting, we got judges cheating, playing smoking mirrors. All the while, two innocent men's lives, they slowly disappear. your own 